although he wasn't in good health, Shivananda walked to the satsang every morning and evening and back again to his kutir. Stephen and I would go to stand up on the road by his kutir so we could see him when he came out and began the long curved walk up to the Diamond Jubilee Hall area. Then we would hurry over to a flight of stairs that came out through an opening in the plaza above so we could see him some more. Every sight of Shivananda was like Yogananda's definition of God, ever new joy. One day when I came down the hill toward the hall area, I found Shivananda walking with just one attendant. No one else was around, so I followed behind. Then he turned and went to a seat at the top of the small stairs that led down to the plaza of the hall. I followed and sat down looking up at him as the attendant walked on, and then there was just the two of us in all the world. After a while he indicated if I wanted something, and I shook my head as I looked at him because this was all I wanted. He looked satisfied, and I certainly was. Now, one interesting thing was the way each morning satsang was ended. When everything was completed, sitting there in his chair, Shivananda would look a bit mischievous and look at us and say slowly, kindly, sweetly, carefully, quietly, softly, politely, leave the hall at once. Sometimes the words were changed, but they always ended in Lee, L-Y. And everyone would go to stand outside except for one, me. I, I could not bear to leave him, so I would sit looking at him as he looked back at me. Then when he figured out I wasn't leaving, uh, he would stand up, I would stand up, and watched him walk through the door as I followed to watch him go out of sight and then hurry with Stephen, who had politely left the hall when told to, to stand by the road where he would be coming down. Those were immortal moments, and they are absolutely present to me, even as I just tell you about them. I have to say that rice had never been a favorite food with me. Uh, no doubt because, except for rice pudding, it's unknown in the cuisine of the American Midwest. After spending a short time in India, I'd come to really dislike it. Nothing repulsed me more than plain boiled rice. The very smell of boiled Indian rice nauseated me. I'm quite serious. This was no, so, no small problem because in northern India, rice makes up most of the diet. Poor people often have nothing but rice with a little salt, date sugar, or yogurt sprinkled on it. One morning in the satsang, Swami Shivananda spoke to a visitor and asked him, Will you have lunch with me tomorrow? Yes, Swamiji, eagerly replied that fortunate man. Just plain boiled rice, said Shivananda, that's all. Yes, Swamiji, of course, the man answered. Now, my detestation of plain boiled rice in no way diminished my envy of that blessed man. 
I assumed that Shivananda was not well and that his diet was restricted to the horrid stuff. But who would care? I would eat dirt to spend time in his presence. A second person was invited, and again the litany about plain boiled rice was repeated. The third person who was invited said, No, no, the doctor said that I must not eat rice. I was flabbergasted. Would someone really refuse the invitation of such a great soul for such a flimsy reason? Why not eat the disgusting stuff, enjoy the master's company, and then get sick later at leisure? At least you would have the memories of Shivananda being right there near you. In a moment, my astonishment was replaced by an even greater wonder. As Shivananda looked at me and asked, Gopal Das, will you have lunch with me tomorrow? I said, oh, yes, Swamiji. Nothing but boiled rice, plain boiled rice, he told me. Is that all right with you? Oh, yes, I told him. Are you sure, he asked. Yes, yes, I told him. You don't mind plain boiled rice? You know, obviously he knew something about me. <laughs> well, I said, of course. Oh, no, I'll be very glad to eat it. He nodded and said, all right, at 11.30, be there, don't be late. I could not believe it. I had been invited, too. Next to Joppa, my anticipation filled my thoughts for the rest of the day and the early morning hours of the next. I was on time, believe me, for that plain boiled rice, I can assure you. But the plain boiled rice turned out to be the most elaborate meal I have ever eaten. There were at least 60 different dishes. I never saw such an elaborate meal, not even in India. Cautioning me to only take a little, since I must be sure to eat some of everything, Shivananda supervised my eating. Just plain boiled rice, he commented very meaningfully, and I knew that he knew. The incident I want to tell you now concerns the third person I just mentioned, who was invited to lunch by Swami Shivananda and who refused, saying his doctor had told him not to eat rice. Let me give you a bit of his background. He had a lending library of Shivananda's books somewhere in Madras, about which he boasted to all, and he had come to stay in the ashram for two weeks. He very obviously admired himself very much, and his manner always showed that he continued ever that he considered not continue, but he did continue to consider everyone else in the satsang to be definitely second-class devotees, and he hoped that his example would straighten us out. He did not just come into the satsang; he entered with a capital E. His example to us consisted of exaggerated salutations of Swami Shivananda and always to sit or stand with joined palms in a very military manner with an expression of intense concentration and fervor. The way he walked indicated that he was treading where angels trod, or maybe more accurately, that he was an angel treading where previously only human beings, that was us, had trod. Now I found his ways very funny, but others did not. Anyhow, his devotion did not extend to breaking his doctor's rules. 
He was never seen around the ashram outside the morning satsangs since he had announced to Shivananda that all his time would be spent in meditation. I assumed that by evening satsang he was immersed in profound samadhi, or what is called a reasonable facsimile thereof, so we never saw him in the evening. His time finally came. One morning, Shivananda began questioning him about his diet, which did not include rice. Looking at him very humorously, with his little boy about to pull something smile, Shivananda began questioning him about his diet. His first comment was, Now, of course, you can eat eggs, can't you? The man got very quiet, because you see, in India, yogis don't eat eggs. But Shivananda went on. Uh, because eggs are a vegetable, aren't they? That's right, isn't it? Eggs are a vegetable. Then he looked around at the rest of us and asked, Where do eggs come from? Uh, they grow in the sea, don't they? They're some kind of sea vegetable, aren't they? No, no, they're not that. Can anyone remember? Where do eggs really come from? But they are vegetables, so it's all right. It's all right. The great devotee had turned to stone, and we all knew what he had been eating all along. I don't know what he decided to eat in the future, but he was never seen again in the present. As I said before, being a genuine person, Shivananda had no tolerance for fakery, especially from someone who presented himself as a super devotee and yogi. Shivananda had all the yoga powers, including the power to heal the sick and even raise the dead, and even preventing a predestined death. I don't exaggerate in the least when I tell you that he was a god walking the earth. In him, I saw every virtue developed to the maximum degree. You know, there is a great deal of irresponsibility in the teaching of Hatha Yoga. Worthy teachers are not easy to find, although I have come across many who, when I would try to tell them of the risks, always shrugged me off with the assurance that they did the easy and gentle asanas. There was no use for me to tell them that if they could not see the subtle bodies of their students and the effects of the postures on them, they should not teach any asanas at all. Incorrect Hatha Yoga practice can lead to serious illness far in the future. For example, two sadhus with severe, ashra, with severe <laughs> asthma once visited a well-known yogi's ashram in South India. When they told the yogi of their trouble, he asked them, Didn't you practice intense Hatha Yoga 25 years ago in Kanyakumari? They were amazed. Yes, they had. And that has caused your present illness, he told them. Your practice was faulty. Okay, now to my story. Stephen was a great enthusiast for Hatha Yoga, fond of standing on his head, so he wanted to take the classes offered to Shivananashram. Considering that immediately the monk teacher told us that he could himself no longer do Hatha Yoga, Due to falling while trying to get into a complex posture, we should have backed off right there. 
In America, I had met a Hatha yoga teacher with the same limitation, and he too kept on teaching others what had harmed him. But Stephen wanted to get on his head, so while he did so, the damaged Hatha yogi tried to do the same for me. The result was that after sleeping in the afternoon that day, when I awoke, every nerve in my body seemed to be taut and painful. When I got out of bed, I found I couldn't even stand upright, that my abdominal muscles were in some kind of spasm that kept me from it. It was misery beyond description, and I'm not joking, even all my teeth hurt. When Stephen went to the evening satsang, I stayed behind, sure that I couldn't possibly scramble down the steep hillside beneath the Kailash Kutiras. There were no cement steps there at that time. But when I knew the satsang had started, I asked myself, how can you be up here when Shivananda is down there, right now bestowing blessings on all present? It's better to die trying to get there, for if that is your last thought, you'll surely go to a higher level in the other world. So I tried it out. It was terrible, and I kept sliding down in the loose dirt. Yet I eventually made it and came staggering, all bent over, into the satsang. There was Shivananda, and I was sure that I could not bow down to him. But I found I could, though just barely. And I even got up. As I was heaving up, he spoke to Swami Devananda, who took out of his magic bag half of a ladu that must have been as big as a softball. I'm not exaggerating. And he handed it to me. If anything can kill me, this is it, I thought, as I took the ladu and shuffled over to sit beside Stephen. Um, by the way, uh, let me pause here for a moment, kind of a footnote. Shivananda's strategy about getting rid of the parasites by no longer lecturing, but joking and having fun had worked. In the morning satsangs, we had only about 20 and about 40 in the evenings, despite the large number of residents in the ashram. Oh, well, back to the ladu. Well, it might be my time to die. So I ate that ladu. If you don't know what a ladu is, I can define it in one word. Sugar. White sugar. Pure poison. So I ate the poison to find that Shivananda had turned it into Amrita, that which can, which can bestow immortality, because it instantly cured me. I had not expected it, but I was not surprised, for he was... As I've said, the master of life and death. I already knew that. Later, Swami Shivananda told me to never practice Hatha Yoga, that walking was the best exercise for me personally. I was extremely satisfied.